Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The issue of Russia and Ukraine. My guest writes, Mr. Putin's speech. You ever watch any of that? I mean, I watch, I don't speak Russian, but I watch this guy. And he doesn't look well. He really, I mean, he doesn't look well. And he sounds worse. Uh, Putin's speech, uh, according to my guest, shows why it's difficult to negotiate with him. His rationality is so different to ours. It was clearly a discourse of might is right. So my guest also writes, the problem now is the tanks may not stop in Ukraine. So what is likely to take place? Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us, Royal Military College and Queen's University, the NATO College in Rome. He's an international intelligence and security expert, frequently called to testify at parliamentary hearings. And his most recent book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford Press. Christian, thank you very much for the time. Your book takes on constantly added relevance. We need intelligence, and it is statecraft, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, this is the first line of defense. You need to know what your adversaries and uh, non-state uh, actors are up to in terms of undermining your interests, undermining our security, our prosperity, our democracy. And of course, Russia has been at the forefront of that since 2007, since uh, President Putin decided uh, that he was going to go all in uh, on undermining uh, the West at every opportunity. And so really the actions that we see him taking uh, is simply a continuity of his behavior for the past 15 years. Did it surprise you that for weeks there was this, will he, won't we, attitude, and Putin just tightened the string and loosened the string by saying, yeah, I'm moving troops over here, but it's just exercises. We don't plan on invading Ukraine. And it just seemed to me, and I don't know, I wasn't around in 1939, but it just, I wondered if there were some parallels where people were just hoping for peace in our time, hoping that Putin would not turn out to be the 2022 version of 1939. Uh, I think there's two dimensions to that. So as I always like to say, my grandfather repeatedly had a stern warning for me, which is never trust the Russians. Um, and he had himself rather unfortunate experiences, firsthand experiences in that regard. And I think that sort of broadly appears to prevail. But I think I would sort of nuance that as saying that the Russians themselves, as other peoples, are, are, are good people. It is the Russian regime the regimes that uh, Russia seems to generate that are profoundly self-interested and have continually governed uh, this um, highly interesting and, and cultured country um, in ways that have not been in the interests of the vast majority uh, of, uh, of Russians. And so I think this is what we see on display here. The immediate challenge, of course, in this is if you can't trust a leader of a country or the regime that's behind him, and it's very difficult to negotiate. And I think this is the mistake, really, that much of the West here made, that since 2015, um, uh, countries such as Germany, first and foremost, have banked on diplomacy, that there are diplomatic ways to resolve differences with Putin. And the discourse that you mentioned, this very angry discourse of Monday night, showed that these differences, there, there is no common denominator that I could identify. The way he interprets the world, he reads the world, 
his extremely conspiratorial way of understanding everything that outsiders do as directed against him and against Russia makes it very difficult to find uh, any sort of common denominator, let alone then uh, building the trust that would be required to translate an agreement into actionable outcomes. And Putin likes to blame the West for um, Ukraine not having pressured Ukraine to implement the Minsk agreement. But of course, why would he implement an agreement with an opponent that has shown himself of not adhering to basic premises of international law or, for instance, most recently, him sending peacekeepers in quotation marks into Nagorno-Karabakh after the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, which he did completely uh, in complete violation of Russia's obligations in terms of coordinating with the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So in that regard, you know, I, I can understand why if there's no trust, you can't negotiate, and certainly you wouldn't be able to implement anything that you negotiate. Uh, so I think it put Ukraine in an extremely difficult and challenging uh, position. Um, and I think the Canadians and others who think that we should just we should just resolve this through diplomacy and why do we need to have war and so forth uh, are simply naive in the sense that there are simply bad people out there uh, who will simply act purely in a self-interested fashion and who will stop at nothing to try to uh, advance their self-interest over the collective interests of their own people, let alone over that of the rest of the world. Yeah, well, people know I love dogs. I had a dog just about my entire life. But I also believe in this. If a big dog is growling at you, say nice doggy, but carry a big stick. Um, so you wrote in an op-ed in the National Post, Christian, that, and you accused the Canadian government of enabling Russia. Speak to that, please. So I think there's two particular challenges that I identify in that op-ed. Um, one is the consistent challenge that Canada has around money laundering. Uh, that as the Colin Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia is revealing as part of its uh, hearings and confirming, um, Canada is a safe haven for dirty money from across the world. Um, and it is one of the elements that is, for instance, driving the excessive increase in um, housing prices and residential costs in this country, because that's one way that bad actors from around the world park their money uh, in Canada. And if there's one thing that the Colin Commission has definitely unearthed is that Canada is world-class, world-class in the way that its financial laws and its privacy laws protect criminals and protect the ultra-rich to the detriment of ordinary Canadians. Um, and Canada has a moral obligation, but it also has, in light of what's happening with Russia, a strategic obligation to be much more proactive. That is to say that, um, as the New York Times, for instance, reported again today, Vladimir Putin alone believes to have a fortune of about 100 billion that he's amassed. It's believed that uh, the Russian kleptocracy is hiding about a trillion dollars outside of the country. And about 200 billion is money that Putin has direct access to and that he uses to fund movements that are profoundly undemocratic, for instance, and that look to undermine, achieve his objective of undermining our security, our prosperity, and our democracy. So I think politicians like to ignore this because they think it is not causing direct harm. But everything from the fentanyl crisis in this country to the way bad actors are using dirty money uh, to undermine our democracy and that of our allies and partners requires the government of Canada 
to step up and to meet its obligations um, under FATF, um, uh, so under the Financial Action Task Force, uh, to which it, it has signed up, um, and to make sure that we don't just do this by having uh, a, a pretty laws on the books, but that we also, for instance, have investigative capacity, which also the RCMP has shown itself um, uh, rather inept at the ability to prosecute uh, complex financial crime cases. If you need any evidence of that, no one in Canada has ever gone to jail for transnational money laundering, despite the fact that it is prolific in this country. Christian, before we go on, I just want to play something here. And it's something that millions of people have uh, seen and heard over the last couple of days. And it's the exchange between a Russian warship and Ukrainian border guards. And the Russian warship, in case you haven't heard it, the Russian warship tells the Ukrainian border guards, surrender, give up, because if you don't, we're going to shell you. And the Russian border guards, the version you've heard is just the, probably the Russian border guards, or the Ukrainian border guards in Russian telling the, the Russian ship, Russian warship, go and, um, you know, you know, the rest of it. So, but there's more to that because they were discussing with each other. I just want to play you that. First voices you'll hear, it's in Russian. You'll hear the Russian warship communicating with the border guards, and then you'll hear the reply from the border guards just before they died after they defied the warship. Play it. And that is what the Russian warship heard back, and then they opened fire. Doctor Luprecht, Christian, that that just makes your blood run cold, and and I and and I have such admiration for those those border guards because they knew exactly what was going to happen to them. Uh, it's a war crime, uh, pure and simple. Um, uh, given that there was no immediate exchange of fire or threat from uh, from the Ukrainians, uh, it appears. So that warrants an investigation. Um, and I think there will be a lot of war crimes here uh, that will emerge because uh, under President Putin, um, uh, crimes against humanity have become a tactic uh, that he has used uh, in Russia, uh, especially in the occupied regions, uh, including Donbass and Duhansk, but also throughout Africa, where, for instance, the Wagner Group's human rights uh, violations and war crimes are amply documented by the European Union. And it is one other, one more reason why Putin has to be stopped because he consistently demonstrates that he, he has no regard for human life and that he effectively has a henchman that he has either ordered uh, or employed to carry out uh, acts that are incomplete and gross violations of the most basic elements of human dignity. And that's one more reason why this man must be stopped at any and all cost. Yeah, there have been videos that have been absolutely hor horrifying. The armored uh, military vehicle chasing and then just engulfing this small personal vehicle, little car. And we heard stories about um, kindergartens, schools being shelled. It's just it's horrific. But I cut you off before the break. I apologize. I had to take the break. Please continue with the point you were going to make. Oh, so just quickly, so the, I think the other criticism that I have is that, of course, by how does Russia fill its war chest? Primarily through the export of, uh, of natural resources, in particular gas and oil. 
and in particular gas to European allies, such as Germany and several other European countries, uh, that then, of course, uh, pay Russia for that gas and pay Russia handsomely, given the prices that it now charges. Now, uh, these Europe so if we want to avoid Russia being able to finance these human rights abuses, finance these wars, finance these atrocities across the world, then we need to be able to provide our European allies with other sources to procure their natural gas. Canada has ample natural gas, but it turns out most of that gas is not near our coastline. That requires us to build pipelines. But we know that there's lots of opposition in this country to building pipelines. So Canadians who oppose pipelines, it's a free country. Everybody can have their views. But we need to understand that from a government strategic perspective, it is, in my view, terrible strategy because we need to provide an alternative to our European allies in particular. And it, Canadians also who oppose pipelines need to understand that by opposing those pipelines, um, that effectively aids and abets the uh, Putin's behavior because this is what continues to finance his human rights and war machine uh, that is steamrolling Ukraine. So I think in this country, we might want to have a more honest conversation about what the implications are of opposing pipelines. It's ultimately a political decision whether we build them or not, uh, but that there are strategic and human rights consequences to the policy that we have been pursuing in this country. We import somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 barrels of foreign oil every day. And uh, according to some statistics I read earlier today, we parted with $477 billion between 1988 and 2019, paying for foreign oil from, among other countries, Russia. So, as you said, we're, we're enabling. How do, you, how do you see the situation coming to an end? When and how? Yeah, I mean, it's one of sort of the smug Canadian attitudes, right? We think we are so moral and we're so ethical, and we don't realize that if you live... Uh, in much of eastern Canada and Ontario, you are likely filling your gas tank with oil that came from a country uh, that is engaged in serious human rights abuses. Um, and, you know, I've always found it puzzling that we're happy to do that. Yet at the same time, um, we're not willing to uh, take our own oil uh, or oil from sources, from sources that are more ethical and more moral. And again, I think this is where governments have failed in having an open and honest conversation with Canadians. Uh, about the implications of the policies, the energy policies uh, that we have pursued that, in my view, are causing uh, serious financial harm, as you point out, uh, in terms of our own uh, our own intake. We, of course, don't control the extremely dirty ways in the way, for instance, Russia generates natural gas versus the very clean ways uh, that we generate our natural gas. Um, and we're not willing to talk about the just strategic and human rights implications, whether it's oil or natural gas. We have just one minute left, and I, I'm you're very generous with your time for us, and I really appreciate that. How do you see this crisis ending? Well, in the immediate term, the Ukrainian military will have to hold out, and the Ukrainian government will need to hold out. And I think if they can hold out for about a week, then it could get interesting because we already see some of the legitimacy perhaps crumbling. Um, not just among Russians, but also within the Russian, uh, within the Russian regime itself. Um, certainly what this will result in is a rethink in terms of the basic rationale for NATO, which has always been to contain Russia militarily, but also politically and economically. And I think, unfortunately, in Canada, we will need to now pay a higher premium than we have paid. As I've pointed out, we don't even have a fighter jet that can defeat Russian air defenses. How can the prime minister honestly talk about deterrence? 
when we don't have the capabilities, now we're not alone. The German chief of the defense staff made the same comments earlier this week. Uh, but uh, we're going to be living in a much more dangerous world. Uh, and the way that this is going to end is by us showing serious resolve that we are prepared to do what it takes to defend democracy, to defend prosperity, to defend our security and those of our allies and partners in Europe, which is our second most important strategic alliance after that with the United States. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.